This is the Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad Network. Welcome back to Sexy and Surreal, a David Lynch and David Cronenberg podcast. I'm Joe Lipset, and I'm joined, as always, by Mr. Terry Menard. Hi, Terry. Hey, Joe. And I have, I do have a question for you. Mm-hmm. Heineken or Paps Blue Ribbon? <laughs> I mean, they're both not great beer. So what are we doing, Frank? <laughs> yeah, when, when he was like, okay, when when the main characters talk about Heineken, and then we, I'm like, ew, and then Frank mm-hmm. comes in and he's like, no, no Heineken. And I was like, yeah, and he's like, Paps. I'm like, really? <laughs> I, I realize, I realize the decade that this is from, but really? Yeah, yeah. I don't know what it says about beer drinkers in the mid 80s. But um, yeah, folks, we are talking about Blue Velvet from 1986 because we're back on our David Lynch side of the podcast. And Terry, this was a first time watch for you. This was a first time watch for me. And honestly, I wasn't sure what to expect because with the first three movies that we've seen for Lynch, it definitely has a very specific look and feel to it. Even mm-hmm. even though Dune is progressing way outside of his maybe typical uh, foundation, right. there were still a lot of things that I saw that were a direct continuation. And this feels completely removed in some regards okay. to the stuff that comes before for me. And this is when people say this movie has a David Lynch feel. This is immediately when I was watching. It's like, oh. I get what they're talking about or what they're referring to, because if they had said that about some things, I'd be like, this does not feel like Elephant Man or, right, you know, Eraserhead or whatever. Yeah, this is very much the one where everything starts to come together. And I think for that reason, that's why it's become a bit of an American classic. Also, this really starts to get him the kind of attention like... Even though when we talked about The Elephant Man, we acknowledged that he was nominated for an Oscar for that Mm -hmm. film. I think when you say David Lynch and really celebrated works, people do naturally gravitate to this point in his filmography. So this is the one that gets him the second Best Director Oscar nomination. And then right after this, we go into Twin Peaks. So this is the cusp of celebrated David Lynchian-ness. Yeah, so when I was watching this, I was immediately grabbed by the the sort of suburbia ideal here. And when mm-hmm. when I was what immediately made me think of was actually Knives and Skin, the Jennifer oh, okay. Reader film, because mm-hmm. I was like, okay, people called that Lynchian, and I could see some Lynchian stuff to it. I was like, but after watching this, seeing how much it kind of influenced the way we look at suburbia after yep. this film. I, I understood exactly where like some of these films are pulling from, from everything from, I would suggest that Tim Burton uh, is in some ways, particularly with like Beetlejuice, the opening of Beetlejuice is more mm-hmm. of a mainstream Lynch with that movie in particular, but then also like American beauty with showing the sort of like rot li- laying underneath, you know, yep. perfect suburbia or even knives and skin. Like I can see that kind of continuation of, there's something rotten <laughs> in small town Americana. Mm-hmm. And it's not like it's an original idea that David no. Lynch came up with, but it is one of those things where this feels somehow like such a concentrated dose of it. And because it's Lynch, we're starting almost with the innocuous, right? Like it's small town, it's a, a lumber town. We've got this aw shucks performance by Kyle McLaughlin 
Lynchian favorite, regular, however you want to call him. <laughs> and he's giving off such a boy next door vibes. And, you know, yeah, we start with some kind of heart attack or injury to his father, although we don't know that that's the relationship. But even, you know, from that opening scene where we go from dad falling in the perfect white picket fence yard and then we just creep right under the grass and see like oh it's bugs it's disgusting and then we're finding ears and off we go but i think even if you know what this film is doing you're not prepared for the kind of depths of depravity that lynch is going to explore like i thought this was going to be a crime film i didn't <laughs> realize it was going to go this dark same the visual language in the beginning, though, is is something that like really I, I cued in on, on mm -hmm. with this with this watch because the opening music is is stunning. It's very like sensual, but mm -hmm. also sort of like there's an element of grandiose that we would see in like the Hammer films. So there's like this kind of it's a big feeling score with the blue velvet curtains, right. and then we're immediately dropped into this almost. I would say preternaturally bright, like it's just everything feels hazy and dreamlike and perfection while we're like <laughs> looking at this small town feel. And you mentioned the white picket fences clashing with the red roses and the immaculate yards. But the visual language of showing the the hose that's connected to the uh, the wall that's you <laughs> know, getting water for the, the hose is like shaking and bursting and ready to burst at the same time that the man is having whatever issue he has i i agree i thought it was a heart attack but it's a little it's nebulous it's not quite yeah. certain yeah so we get we get that and it's like oh something's not right here and then i was not prepared joe for that image of going that you mentioned going deep under the grass and we're like the grasses are almost like a jungle and you see this mm -hmm. other microcosm living just underneath this picture perfect setting and you're right it's not a novel idea even in this time in 1986 it's not a novel idea but the way he presents the visual imagery of it is something that is indelible to cinema post this mm -hmm. movie, I would suggest. Yeah, and it's weird too, right? Because like people almost always talk about the opening of this film. And I think it's because it's so accessible in what honestly is a filmmaker who has had a very challenging career. Like when people talk about Lynch, I think they often talk about the surreal. They talk about nonlinear storytelling. They talk about really leaning into the visual language of cinema. And I think normies, quote unquote, can sometimes find that very confounding or challenging, like to the point where there's going to be a whole population of folks who are going to get turned off if you say, oh, it's a David Lynch film. They're like, no, not for me. Thank you. I want something more straightforward. But this opening to me is straightforward. Absolutely. Like, I don't want to say it lacks subtlety, but I think he's laying out his thesis on his sleeve or under the grass, as it were, <laughs> very readily so that it's like, this is what we're going to be exploring. And then we're just going to substitute these bugs for people. Yes, absolutely. Because what jumped out at me in, in particular was like, oh, this feels like a more conventional or more mainstream approach to what what lynch has done at that point because i mean mm -hmm. up to this point we've had yes dune was a big sci-fi classic but it wasn't exactly the easiest film to get into <laughs> no. and i think it turned off audiences even that opening of dune right where it's right. like we're still dealing with the cosmos we've got this voiceover narration that is grand and epic but you're like wait what are we even talking about i don't understand <laughs> the rules of this world here it's like it's suburbia you right. recognize the visual imagery here 
Absolutely. And even like going back even further with like, so Eraserhead, a little experimental film, it is mm-hmm. not going to resonate with a lot of with a lot of people, a lot of quote unquote normies. And even though I'm sure Elephant Man got views because of the Oscar bait, I mean, it's not exactly the kind of film that mainstream audience wants to go see. It's mm-hmm. this it's more of a hate to use the word, but more elevated. It's a little bit more, you know, the artsy <laughs> crowd, whereas this feels bright dirty and kind of catching sort of i think some of the things that cinema had been exploring in the 80s up until this point right and really sort of taking that visual language and then being like okay we're going to start off with this very easy to follow narrative and then we're going to zoom into that fucking ear hole mm-hmm. and <laughs> go into the other side and you're not going to like what you see yeah yeah and i mean i don't think we can underestimate how important the time frame here is like this is 1986 in reagan's america so it's all about conservatism and like how we present on the outside everything is peachy fine it's all about the economy nuclear family blah 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 no problems at all but really all you have to do is pick at the surface to realize oh all of the bad shit is there. It's just been covered up. Like, this is shit in Shinola. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of, like, I was thinking back to this film. I was like, when did this, I had to go look. I was like, when did this film get released? It was 86. And I'm thinking, okay, a lot of the cinema we've seen around this this time frame, in, in particular from horror cinema, I would suggest, mm-hmm. is definitely very similar to it, where it's like you have poltergeist, where, you know, yes, you've moved out of the cities and we're in suburbia, but you have built your land over possessed grounds you've built mm-hmm. your land over things you're kind of trying to cover up the violence of the past or the you know right. deaths of the past and it's eventually going to come through or you look at gremlins or you look at all these mm-hmm. types of things that are happening within this microcosm of either suburbia or small town americana that is erupturing and we also have at the same time in in the book form we have like it you know being worked on and being released that is digging into sort of the same kind of small town horrors that are lurking just beneath what seems to be a normal quote-unquote society mm-hmm. well and that's why i think the character of jeffrey ends up working so well because he's almost naive and innocent right like or at least that's how kyle mclaughlin really plays him in the opening couple of scenes he's so golly gee aw shucks all american boy and like kyle mclaughlin he's a beautiful man but this oh. is him you know, he's not Paul Atreides in Dune. He's not kind of like the weird mystical figure. He's not a savior. He's an everyman in this film. And he's so easy to latch on to, particularly his curiosity, right? Because this is, you know, if we were looking at this as a horror film, which you could absolutely do, this is very much the, I peeked my head in somewhere I shouldn't have, and then I fall down the rabbit hole into yep. like one very bad night kind of rendition where... Things just escalate, they snowball, they get out of hand, and all of a sudden, you are literally in a car with gangsters potentially about to be murdered. That's why I think this movie works so well for people, because it's so easy to get on board and associate and identify with Jeffrey, and then all of a sudden, you find, oh shit, I'm on for the ride. Like a good movie, or a good narrative in general, I would suggest there's different ways of of reading this film, and I think that there is a surface-level reading that I think people that don't want to think too hard about film can mm-hmm. latch onto with this that maybe right. his earlier films don't have. So, you know, it's, you can see this, you can see very easily what this kind of movie is about. Oh, 
peeling away the curtain, seeing it going down this rabbit hole. Like you can see the, this visual language, but then you can also peel it back even further. And I think that's what makes it so interesting for both maybe um, a casual film viewer and someone that is going to dig in the weeds metaphorically and literally to find <laughs> that sort of lingering stuff hiding underneath the surface. And I think that's why it's so successful. Yeah. So as a first time viewer, what were some of your like takeaways from this film? We talked about how it's relatively easy to get on board with it. And there's a kind of like surface level reading, but then you can also go a lot deeper. What were some of the things that you ended up getting really attracted to? Sure. Um, so w the big thing, the easiest thing was I love the way that it takes film noir and sort mm -hmm. of explores it through the co the microcosm of small town where it's not a big town, but it doesn't take place in the city. We're not mm -hmm. like a, a haggard uh, detective that is, you know, throwing back alcohol and, you know, talking chant with his with a cigar <laughs> and you know pontificating on the life that that he could have had. And, right. you know, it, it's it's more fresh faced in that regard, but it's also about a smaller place. But the kind of drama and the kind of horror and the kind of things that the detective in this case, the Jeffrey discovers is equally as horrifying as the stuff that would happen in the big city or mm -hmm. in um, film noir as a general. And I love that it goes all the way up to the top of the police station. Like I, I love the, the structure of noir that is the foundation of this movie. Yeah. It's so seedy too, right? Like mm -hmm. when you start to dig beneath the surface, like what yeah. I love is, is how quickly that descent goes, but also how sort of subtle it is. Like for me, the film shifts gears when Jeffrey enters into Dorothy's apartment because it yes. has a completely different look than what we would expect for the small town. Like the town is quaint. It's a little bit run down. It kind of looks like we could be in a depression era. Like, you know, we we see that Jeffrey, his dad, owns this um paint and hardware store. Yeah, paint and hardware store, which what could be more small town? Exactly. What I loved, by the way, is that right next to it, whenever we see the that shop, there's a shop next to it that says more paint. Mm -hmm. And it's just such a small <laughs> little detail, but it makes me <laughs> laugh every time I would see it. <laughs> there'd be this other store called more paint right next to the paint shop <laughs> jesus of course yeah but like when we move into dorothy's space you know we've got this lush plum colored carpeting and it looks modern and contemporary like it looks like we've literally stepped into a whole other world and then we've got that visual signifier of the bright red velvet curtains and of course dorothy is always wearing her blue velvet night coat kind of uh, dressing gown and it feels so classy and she's so obviously the femme fatale but then this movie subverts those expectations because she's also the victim right right yes and and, and speaking of the kind of um ascent into her her hotel and her domain or her apartment and her domain what I loved is that it's kind of the inversion because, you know, he's sort of going into hell in, in some regards. Mm -hmm. But instead of like going down underground like a lot of cinema would have, he's actually having to he's being forced to climb seven flights of <laughs> seven stairs. flights <laughs> for the seven rings of hell. There you go. And then when he enters that last that door, the interior of the apartment 
not necessarily her apartment, but the halls outside of the apartment brought mm-hmm. back kind of the same imagery that Lynch was using with um, Eraserhead, sort of yeah. the, the kind of decay that is there. Cause the, it doesn't, it looks seedy as hell when mm-hmm. he's in that hallway. Like there's, there's like uh water spots on the door and the door looks kind of dirty. Like it, it just, yep. it doesn't give off small town vibes. It gives mm-hmm. off kind of, creepy city vibes and then you do walk into her luxurious apartment and it's like oh this is a different mm-hmm. kind of look as well yeah yeah and it's it's really telling us a lot about the character through the production design and the sets yeah. and props and stuff and i think that's one of the things that i really end up enjoying about lynch is he can be very controlling like he he wants things to be done a certain way he has that eye about him not in a kind of like kubrick i'm gonna make you do 85 million takes of it but you (laughs) know this is very carefully constructed like we are meant to feel or sense a shift in the narrative in who these characters are when we move into dorothy's space and we see that carry over into the nightclub where she performs blue velvet every night But it is in stark contrast to the kind of like open, welcoming suburban neighborhood that we see Jeffrey and uh, Sandy walking through, right? Like this feels worlds apart from where Jeffrey should be. Yeah. And and I think the thing that's that's so interesting that keeps getting brought home in this is it's just down the street. It's Mm -hmm. literally like, you know, she just she basically lives across the street almost, it feels like from their from their houses. And it's a constant thing where it's like either they're referring to her or him as a neighbor. And -hmm. they're also referring to it as just being, you know, just basically a stone throw away. And so we have like this this potentially seedy and yet extravagant underbelly that is just right there next to these more suburban ideal homes that we would see with the the nuclear family ideal. Mm hmm. Yeah, I love the idea, too, that it was always there. It's just that Jeffrey never took notice until he found the ear, right? Like, he needed some kind of, it's almost like a totem, right? Like, he found a magical device, and it opens up this new world, this new way of seeing the world. And as soon as he does that, he can't turn it off anymore. Like, there's so many times where you watch this movie and you think, Jeffrey... You are not a detective. You are not a police officer. You don't have a gun. You're a fucking college kid. Why won't you just let this go? And he can't because he becomes embroiled in it. But you can also tell that he is loving it. Like he is being corrupted as he makes his way through the narrative. And we have Sandy that is basically the entire rest of the movie apologizing for getting him involved into this. Mm -hmm. It's almost as if like, you know, she knew that you could peel back this curtain and, and peek, but like she's never done it herself. And yet right. we have she ha- she's telling Jeffrey about it and then he's peeking back and she's like, oh, shit. Now he is mm-hmm. getting pulled into something that is way above him and way darker than he is probably supposed to be able to handle at that at that time frame. But he ends up also partially corrupting her as a result, yeah. right? Like when she's introduced, she could be sandy from greece like the name is exactly the same and the way that they dress is like it's almost closer to 50s than it is 80s and i think that's a very strategic very determined choice on behalf of lynch and his creative team and like there's a moment where the two of them are walking on that first kind of date right where uh they're walking down the suburban streets and she keeps getting highlighted by the street lamps yes and she is just pureness goodness embodied like she is 
quite literally the perfect girl for him. And the problem is that she has a boyfriend on the football team who <laughs> I couldn't even remember if we even saw this guy. So that one scene where he runs over and he's like, <laughs> very funny. But I love that she says, you know, I don't want to date you. I don't want to. I'm not interested in you romantically because I love my boyfriend. And then by the end of the movie, she is so embroiled in him and what he has done that, like, basically she's been corrupted as almost a proxy. And we also don't even know if she even formally dumped him because <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> it seems to have happened off screen potentially because there's this one yeah. part where, you know, she's pushing back. She's like, well, I, I'm hanging out with Mike or whatever. And then the next scene, they're getting, you know, handsy and t- holding hands and all that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. And it's like, when did you break up with him? And it, it t- doesn't even really register that until Mike shows up at the end. He's like, you stole my girl from me. <laughs> right. But it also doesn't matter because you're like, no. Mike, who cares? You're you're not really a part of the story because really you're in a completely different different world you're in the grease side of this story where you're yeah. all playing football and trying to live a normal life these kids are trying not to get killed by criminals right now <laughs> <laughs> so i've mentioned dorothy a couple of times this was a huge moment for isabella rossellini she oh. was having difficulty transitioning from her modeling career into acting and david lynch basically did that for her well okay that sounds terrible David Lynch gave her the opportunity and then she fucking kills this movie. Yep. What do you think of her performance? You know, so before this movie, my only encounters with Isabella Rossellini would be from Death Death Becomes Becomes Her. Her. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And her two episode run on 30 Rock. Oh, my God. You and 30 Rock. (laughs) (laughs) Where she is playing uh, Jack's ex-wife and she is deliriously over the top in the performance. Mm -hmm. They spend most of one episode kind of arguing over who's going to own an Arby's restaurant outside of some outside of Telluride. (laughs) (laughs) And so between that or her like over the top performance in Death Becomes Her, those are my two kind of sticking points for for her career right so i was like "Ooh, what are we going to get from this and there are elements of camp in here in her performance Mm -hmm. i would suggest but it is a lot more grounded uh than i was expecting her performance to be yeah yeah it's interesting like this movie definitely got accusations of misogyny like Roger Ebert famously fucking hates this movie because of this character and what happens to her. And I can see it, but I look at Dorothy as such a tragic character. Like, she is losing her mind with grief over the tragedy. Like, her husband and her son have both been abducted by this, frankly, outrageous crime boss, Frank Booth. And... She has to continue going on about her daily life while also basically getting sexually assaulted. Maybe every night we're led to believe. Yeah. Yeah. I was curious about the Ebert review and I did go did go pull it up. And I mean, the things that he's saying, I can understand kind of where he's coming from. I mean, yes and no, but (laughs) yeah, well, yes. So he mentions uh, the things that Rosalini is asked to do in this film require real nerve. He says, quote, in one scene, she's publicly embarrassed by being dumped naked on the lawn of the police detective. In others, she is asked to portray emotions that I imagine most actresses would rather not touch. She's degraded, slapped around, humiliated and undressed in front of the camera. 
And when you ask an actress to endure those experiences, you should keep your side of the bargain by putting her in an important film. The way uh, Ebert can just sort of like cut a film down, whether I agree with him or not, always makes me laugh because he can be the most catty and vicious man I've, I have seen. I just find him so judgy. Like he he always acts as though, I mean, yes, he's a film critic, so he has his opinions, but he has a way of writing that if you disagree with him, you must be wrong. Like, yeah. this movie can't be art because he didn't like it and he found her role degrading, so it must be a bad movie or a bad choice for her. That's like, okay. That to me, his quote and that review in general to me summarizes that he misunderstands the intention of the film. Like, it's not degrading for Isabella Rossellini to do this because that's who this character is. Like, you could say it's degrading for the character, but Rossellini took this on knowing what the role entailed. She, I'm sure, worked collaboratively with David Lynch to make sure that she felt comfortable or understand what was expected of that performance. Like, maybe this is me giving too much goodwill to the film and Lynch because I like the movie and I like David Lynch. But I don't know. Well, I, I do think... The the next part of his of his review is where I think he sort of loses it for me, because like I, I love Roger Ebert's writing. He's one of the reasons I always wanted to to write about film was because of him, even when I hated his reviews or I thought mm -hmm. he was being moralistic. Mm -hmm. But here is where I feel that he kind of misses, as you said, kind of the point, because the, the next sentence is really important for because it follows what I just quoted for him. And he says, Lynch distances himself from her ordeal with his clever asides and witty little in-jokes. What's worse, slapping somebody around or standing back and finding the whole thing funny? And I don't think what? that that's what's happening here. And I'm like, no. okay, so you, I think you just completely missed because I was like, what little in-jokes or witty asides do you think mm -hmm. Lynch is injecting into this very serious movie? Yeah, like I'll admit some of the ways that Jeffrey reacts to things can be a little bit funny i would almost say more disarming because i associate that with his age and his life experience but yeah like particularly his interactions with dorothy i don't see comedy in that like the moment where she holds a knife to him she makes him get undressed she nearly fellates him I find all of that incredibly upsetting. Like, I'm traumatized for Dorothy, and I imagine how confronting it must be for Jeffrey to be in this situation. And I I don't find any humor in that at all. No, I feel the same way. In fact, when when Dorothy jams the knife forward and it pokes his cheek, I literally oh, gasped. I was, I was not prepared for that. No. And I think that this scene in particular sort of solidifies what you were saying a little earlier about the character of Jeffrey and and Kyle Kyle's performance of him because he is very childlike. Mm -hmm. He even has like a little colic in his hair that just won't stay right. down. It just sort of it's very angelic. It's very even though he is an adult and he's making mm -hmm. adult decisions, he is still he's a, a babe boy. in the woods. And when he is stripped naked in front of her, again, he does not feel like an older man he feels mm -hmm. like a kid he feels like yeah. this is his first experience with with sex in the same way that it's his oh, first experience with violence and something more seedy than he thought life was going to be and mm -hmm. so it, it is very shocking it is very uncomfortable for both it, I, it, I think it makes the viewer incredibly uncomfortable for, for both characters one because yes. of what she is you know been reduced to and also his sort of like i don't know what's happening this is both exciting and also terrifying at the same time 
Mm-hmm. And that that's why I find this part of his arc so interesting because as a viewer like as an adult i look at him and i say jeffrey you need to stop you need to call on someone who's better equipped to handle this situation because it should not be you like Mm -hmm. you and sandy should not be here you you both need to leave right now Mm -hmm. and because they're they're kids playing private investigators and it's not appropriate and these scenes really illustrate to me how ill-equipped he is to handle it but also that simultaneous connection between the sexiness the dangerousness the curiosity that he already innately had it completely makes sense to me why he keeps coming back you know why he engages in this in an increasingly sexual relationship with her even though he knows it's not safe and she is not in her right mind yeah i was just thinking about how you know it's it's definitely i think you have a a very young man who is approached with someone that is much more sexually knowledgeable, you mm-hmm. know, and more world weary in the world. And that's sort of intriguing because he has like this sort of suburbia life where he's taking those perfect little dates down the street, walking with his girlfriend and mm-hmm. driving around in the hot car. But this is something a little bit more adult and more oh, yeah. real. Mm hmm. Yeah, and and maybe that's the other thing, right? Like, he's only come back to town away from his studies because his father has fallen ill, and he's kind of looking after the store. Like, really, yeah. it seems like Double Ed are taking care of Aww. things because he he's in the store maybe twice in this entire movie, and the rest of the time, he's out pursuing this mystery because it is exciting. It is adult. I think it makes him feel special and important and he he wants to be a white knight to Dorothy. He thinks that he can save her, even though he's put off or he doesn't understand what's happening when she tells him that she wants him to hit her during sex. And you're like, mm-hmm. it's because she is traumatized. Like, this isn't a kink, Jeffrey. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, but also the need to be a detective. I thought it was interesting the way that this uh, sort of mystery begins where he finds the ear and mm-hmm. what does he do? Instead of being like an actual detective and being like, okay, I shouldn't move the evidence. He picks it up and puts it in a bag mm-hmm. with, his, with his hand, drops it off at the police station. The police station's like, yeah, this is exactly what you should have done. You know, mm-hmm. fuck a crime scene. <laughs> and then he's like, all of a sudden he's there with him with the coroner. And I'm like, what? Why is this civilian yeah. <laughs> meeting the the? And it's just sort of like, yes, he's sort of what? Well, why not? You should be the the white knight. You should be the savior. You should be coming in here and being playing a, a you know detective. I'm gonna allow you to do that, and then mm-hmm. it just progresses from there. Well, even like, how does Sandy have information that Dorothy is involved in any of this? Like, we're led to believe that she has access to either her father's files at home or she's overhearing things, but you know. That, to me, is part of the the quote-unquote Lynchian touch, where it's like people have what they need in order to move this forward because, well, the story is important, it doesn't have to be entirely logical, it doesn't have to entirely make sense, it can be a little bit dreamlike, or it can skip a few steps, because this movie is much more about emotions and kind of like exploring things that make you feel uncomfortable or that make you feel discomfort yes and speaking of discomfort (laughs) i was gonna say shall we talk about dennis hopper (laughs) (laughs) this was the other thing that immediately jumped out at me when i was watching this 
and that was the kind of internalized homophobia i would mm-hmm. say that's inherent oh, sure. in the frank booth character and the interesting way that this movie plays with gender mm-hmm. and sexuality yep 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 uh where would you like to start? <laughs> I don't even know, Cho. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I really felt like I picked up on it this time, because I think it's easy to look at Frank as an infantilized kind of misogynist, right? Like, mm-hmm. he wants to play mommy-daddy infant with Dorothy. Oh. He seems almost mesmerized by her vagina when he forces her to sit broad-legged and, like, reveal herself. He's clearly an addict because he's taking huffs of whatever is in this canister that is making him high. And obviously, <laughs> I mean, he is unhinged throughout this entire movie. But then he Interesting this... side note to that, though, yeah. is that I did find online that apparently in an interview with Dennis Hopper in 2002 for the DVD release of Blue Velvet, mm-hmm. Hopper revealed that the drugs in the tank were Hopper's. Oh, hmm, interesting. Yeah. I mean, that just lends credence to a queer reading, doesn't it? Uh It really does. Because to me, yeah, like there's a a lot of weird stuff with the way he reacts to Dorothy, but then he also seems to have a very intimate relationship with men. Like he is unafraid of getting up close and personal with Jeffrey. And you could read this as he's he's threatened he's playing cat and mouse like he he's batting around a mouse before he tries to kill it but like there's a sequence where he literally puts on lipstick and kisses jeffrey full on the face and it's weird but i think it's also like i don't know it feels like a sexual intimidation tactic yes it does and going back to what you were talking about with the uncomfortable almost like three-person uh sexuality with dorothy where he's mm-hmm. like wanting to be father mother and infant mm-hmm. i mean that right there nuclear family he's trying right. to create that you could look at this as sort of like a, a way a metaphor for exploring that ideal of like you know husband wife two and a half kids like this is this is sort of the the feel that he is going for with his sexual fantasies while mm-hmm. at the same time he is hanging out at a place called pussy heaven with a very (laughs) fame man who has like powdered face and has very effeminate hand gestures and he is enraptured in his singing and Mm -hmm. his lip syncing i guess yep and then yes you it kind of culminates with the kiss with the lipstick on the on the mouth and the kissing of jeffrey and him commenting on his cute butt and calling him pretty and all of these kind of things in here that i i feel are fighting within frank for lack of better word yeah yeah uh there's definitely been a couple of different readings about how jeffrey is the son to this kind of weird almost monstrous parental figures in frank and dorothy but yeah i mean i think the queerness is definitely here like we've seen lynch explore intimacy among men and how it sometimes has like a weird sexual angle to it. Sometimes it's just homosocial. But yeah, like the Dean Stockwell character that you mentioned, who's in this kind of boudoir, maybe <laughs> sex worky kind of place, he's giving strong Joel Grey vibes from uh, Cabaret. Oh, yeah. Like it's all there for sure. 
Yeah, and there's that that kind of connection between um, sex and violence because he Frank talks about sending Jeffrey a love letter, which is basically a bullet mm-hmm. from a quote unquote bullet from a fucking gun. And so right. it's this idea of like love and violence that Frank only seems to understand, and that is how he enacts his fantasies out with Dorothy and with everyone. Is this? It's either I have to be a hulking, toxic version of masculinity. Right. In order to kind of hide from the fact that maybe I do want to kiss on these boys. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the fact that, you know, we can circle this all back around and say the fact that it's happening just beneath the surface or just across the street suggests that Frank is not an abnormality, right? Like he's a part of society that we either implicitly know exists and we choose not to acknowledge or he's a derivation of something like these dark impulses that lurk in and around us at all times right Mm -hmm. he's just manifest in the film as like an embodiment of those urges but like the simple fact is is that this cute quaint suburban town that's a bit of a misnomer because you can't be a town and also anyway um (laughs) (laughs) the idea that this darkness and this lightness can coexist And it's like, all you have to do is venture up the wrong set of stairs or cross the wrong street or drive Mm -hmm. to the wrong part of town. But it's always there. And it's like, Terry, you have no idea. This is literally where Lynch will spend the rest of his career going. (laughs) Like, this is what Twin Peaks is about. This is Mulholland Drive. Like, all of these, like, sort of walk on the wild side. All you need is to touch the danger and it will infect you. You will see the world in a different way. But it's always actually been there. It's all Lynch. I was thinking as as I was watching this, because I've I've seen maybe two or three episodes of Twin Peaks, but I was mm-hmm. as I was watching this, I was like, oh, okay. Mm-hmm. This is sort of like the practice ground for what would become Twin Peaks. Oh, a hundred percent. Right down to the fucking logging town, and we're hitting up the diner for coffee and pie. <laughs> coffee and pie, yes. <laughs> But oh my gosh, speaking of which, the, the radio where he's like, logs, 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 mm-hmm. <laughs> it's the sound of Loggerton. I was like, oh my gosh. <laughs> if you're hearing the much. sound, it's one thirty. <laughs> what? <laughs> it's just so random. But yeah. st- sticking with Frank for just a little bit, though, mm-hmm. the other thing was the imagery of Jeffrey constantly being forced into the closet. Yes. Is also a very like... <laughs> It's almost mm-hmm. on the nose, but it is very coded queerness, right? And then we yes. also have Frank telling Jeffrey that you're just like me, I think is the the line. Or you're mm-hmm. like me, or I'm like you. Was it you're like me? I think it's you're like me. Yeah. And so there's this this push and pull between maybe Frank is... I mean, you could look at it a couple different ways. Frank is saying that this toxic masculine performance that i'm showing you who are the exact opposite of me in terms of you're you're more meek you're more boyish mm-hmm. you're more um i mean not effeminate but also you're not like this hyper masculine type butch. of yeah right exactly and so you could look at it as like i am you you just don't know it yet mm-hmm. or you could also look at it through this this queer lens of him seeing something in jeffrey that he sees in himself yeah yeah even this idea that frank needs to do some kind of chemical elixir be it poppers or something else the film is very careful to never actually clarify what he's doing but this idea that he needs to do this to fuck right like this is before the day and age of 
male assistance mm. chemicals uh, to help with performance. But also, yeah, like from a queer perspective, it's like you do the popper so that you can get loose and ready to fuck. Right, exactly. And it's always interesting to me how he kind of whips himself up into both a violent and sexual frenzy. And that is oh when he God. starts to pop those poppers. Yep, it is manic, but it's he's working himself up into a frenzy and using the drugs to help him get there. Mm-hmm. Baby wants to fuck. <laughs> well, oh. at one point, he even looks at the camera and says, I'll fuck anything. Yes, yes. I mean, we have the vantage of looking at this through a contemporary lens where mm-hmm. like, we can see coded queerness through a lot of filmic history right but i i would be really curious to know if those kinds of readings existed back in 86 or if people just looked at him and said oh my god he's a maniac he's unhinged like Mm -hmm. this character i think was really terrifying to a lot of people because he's so unpredictable like he's danger embodied yeah (laughs) yeah he really is so much of watching this movie has me Like, it it puts me into a very uncomfortable position because I don't like unpredictable characters. Like, I've encountered someone kind of like Frank, but, like, as a teenager version of him, where you're just like, I don't want to be around you because I don't know what the fuck you're going to do next. And it could be sexy, it could be playful, or it could be violent. And I don't want anything to do with that. Yeah, he he does sort of embody the the idea of what an abuser is because you don't know... He's he is charismatic. Like there is charisma there. He obviously is able to oh, command sure. a variety of people to to do things because they want to for him. But mm-hmm. at the same time, like you said, you don't know what the reaction is going to be. You don't know if he's going to sit there and cry while someone is singing uh touching songs or whether he's going <laughs> to fly off the handle and, you know, beat you. Yeah. Like you don't know. That first scene where he comes in and Jeffrey's in the closet and just watching the interaction between Frank and Dorothy, and he just keeps punching her and yelling at her not to look at him, but then he's also fucking raping her, and yeah. she's, like, crying. It's it's just so confronting because you're like, oh my god, how has she been putting up with this? No wonder she is on pins and needles, like about to crack at all times. Because how would you put up with this person coming in like a fucking Tasmanian devil and just upending your life doing this to you every day? Right. And he's also taking away the again, that parents in a in a kid ideal from her because he's kidnapped mm-hmm. her husband, he's kidnapped her her son. Um, he's cut off the ear of her husband like he has ruined that sort of heteronormative ideal that the 80s was was espousing in in like conservative mm-hmm. political circles. He has taken that from her and right. he wants her for himself to be all of the roles. Yeah, it's gross. It's very gross. So what do you make of the end of the film where it's revealed that Frank's accomplice, the yellow man, is actually Sandy's father's sorry it's like a police officer basically yeah but like we see the partner with his brains leaking out he's in a stupor in dorothy's apartment and then we see the kind of like tragically dead shot in the head gangland style body of her husband i always forget that that's where this movie goes because (laughs) these aren't really characters like we don't know much about them 
So to be confronted with this tableau of murder and violence is is just so weird to me. It was very weird to me too. I kept staring at him like how is he is he dead? Is he still mm-hmm. standing? What is what is going on with this character? And I I think it is important. I wanted to latch on to something that you said. I don't think that these characters really matter a whole lot, but I do think that they hit the uh, narrative beats that a film noir needs to have, you know, because Mm -hmm. it's this idea that because Jeffrey finally and Sandy to one point are like, let's go talk to the police. And and Dorothy is like, no, you can't go to the police. We can't Mm -hmm. go to the police. And so immediately in my head is like, oh, this is going to go all the way up to the top and the police are going to be involved. <laughs> like that is it. That's a traditional noir structure. Yeah. And so it, when it's revealed that, yes, of course the man that um, Jeffrey has been seeing with Frank is in, involved with the police and there is corruption all the way up to the top. It just, it like, this makes sense from a structure point, but I don't think Lynch was too necessarily too interested in it. It just was, Mm-mm. it felt like a character beat that we're kind of crossing off. However, right. Yeah. Him standing there I didn't I didn't know what to make of it. I honestly mm-hmm. did not. Yeah, because we we see that he's been struck in the head by the TV, but mm-hmm. only because the TV is on the floor next to him and it's cracked. But we don't see any of this action. Like we don't know how this event went down. So we're, you know, much like what has happened to Jeffrey throughout this entire movie. We are just suddenly thrust into this violent, dangerous situation without all of the pertinent facts. And I kind of love that Lynch like a, a conventional film would have been like, here's a big violent set piece to end the movie. And instead, Jeffrey walks into this. And then we don't even really see other stuff like what's happening with the shootout with the gang. We're just seeing the police firing into this building and windows breaking. And then we come back to Dorothy's apartment so we can actually deal with the characters that matter. And mm-hmm. we get that stunning slow motion bullet shot to the head for oh. Frank's death. Love letter right there. <laughs> i mean jeffrey got him good he did i <laughs> sorry the joke mm-hmm. just disarmed me <laughs> <laughs> well in addition to that though there's there's things in here that lynch ha- doesn't seem to bother explaining which i think is is always interesting like for instance there's the the shot where frank and co are all in the the pussy heaven and mm-hmm. then they just vanish yeah that is like this random like moment of like, okay. And then the the guy standing there with his brains out, like figuring out what is going on with him. Why is he just standing there? Why is, mm-hmm. you know, is he dead or alive? But also f- why is Frank dressing up in more masculine version of drag? Right. <laughs> why is he a drag king? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, why, why is he putting on a mustache? What, what is the point of that? What is he trying to do? And Lynch has no, doesn't mm-hmm. really explain it. To, at least no. to me, I didn't see that there was an explanation for why he, why Frank was also the the well dressed man. No, I mean, I I think you can make deductions about like, oh, this is how he was able to conduct business around town without getting caught and so on. Mm-hmm. But I have to infer that that's me reaching because the narrative and Lynch do not give us any kind of answers. No answers whatsoever. And mm-hmm. I like that though. Like I like that there are things in here that are just like yeah, it. Because it's like life. There are things that happen in life where it's like, you know, who knows mm-hmm. why that is. It just, it happened. Yeah. Well, that's a very good attitude to take as we move further <laughs> along this journey, Terry, because there will 100% be way more things going on where you will ask that very question. Wait, what is happening? How is this happening? Why is this happening? <laughs> just accept it and move on. <laughs> mm-hmm. But yeah. 
the thing that really struck me again is how perfect the movie ends where after we've had all of this sort of under the surface horror that you know we've gone to the ear canal and we've seen like the evil that's mm-hmm. lurking underneath of man and after uh frank gets shot the lights go out which is one of the things that he keeps talking about throughout this entire mm-hmm. movie like the lights are out yep and all of a sudden we're pulling back out of the ear canal that this time belongs to jeffrey and we're back in the picture perfect colorized overly overly uh, lit, lit. Yep. <laughs> yep dreamlike aesthetic that opened up the movie and it's sort of like reversing us back out and and spin us back out to where we when we started it mm-hmm. but and it's so interesting it's almost so fake terry yeah like, yeah you you said dreamlike and that's what i was going to suggest because this to me almost feels like a fake addendum to this movie not in a bad way it's more i think an ironic commentary from lynch because this is so fake perfect like it's jeffrey and his dad is better and they're hanging out with sandy and her family and everybody's getting along and everything's ready and like look there's the robin with the insect you know the bad (laughs) insect that symbolized the rod at the beginning of the movie and it's trapped in the the robin's beak which of course is the symbol from sandy's dream about when we see the robins and they're back that's when everything will be fine and you're just like Mm -hmm. this is so on the nose perfect it can't be real and and what i what i enjoyed about this is that it kind of gives this this movie uh an alice in wonderland feel where it's like right we're in the quote-unquote real world as a viewer we're going to start with what you know about americana i'm going to take Mm -hmm. you deep into the darkness of it and then i'm going to spit you right back out and you're going to see that this world that you have established for yourself that you're seeing happen in front of you isn't necessarily the full story Mm -hmm. as a viewer See, for me, there is no coming back out from that ear canal. Like, the real world is the world that we spend the majority of the film in. Yeah. Like, everything that we're seeing when we come out of Jeffrey's ear at the end of this is like, this is your beautiful facade, you idiots. Like, if you Mm want to live in this world, it is to neglect and pretend that the real stuff isn't there. And it's fake. Right. And I think that that's sort of like the the intent that I got from from this, the way mm-hmm. the ending is like, okay, I'm spitting you back out, viewer, you've seen the reality. Um, do with it as you will. <laughs> right. Yeah. Do you want to go back to your fantasy life? Or right. do you want to acknowledge what's really there? And the film allows you to make up your mind. I could imagine a bunch of people walking up being like, well, at least we got a happy ending. <laughs> yes. everything got tied up in a perfect knot yeah it's such a bullshit but i mean yeah i love it yeah i i really enjoyed this one a lot more than um i i was a little i was a little trepidatious going into this because i i know that a lot of people really like this one and i'm like okay i've seen what what lynch has done in this in his first three films and this one i knew was sort of the kind of Lynchmark. Lynchmark. It's the big one. Yeah, it's the big the lynchmark. one. It's-, <laughs> <laughs> it's the one that's representative of kind of the stuff that, as you say, we're going to see him explore uh, in the future. So I was like, what? What am I gonna? What am I gonna think about this? But I ended up mm-hmm. really, really enjoying it. Yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting, even though the dates are not matching up between Cronenberg and Lynch's career the points at which we're sort of entering their respective filmographies like right now on the podcast 
is actually very much a commentary like they're they're both settling into what they truly want to explore and we're starting to get these iconic texts where they have figured out this kind of perfect combination between their daredevil independent roots and a more sort of commercially viable Mm. audience friendly but still boundary pushing auteur films right yeah yeah that was a word salad, but I think I kind of got there. <laughs> you did, absolutely. <laughs> oh, boy. Ugh. Well, I'm glad that you liked Blue Velvet, and I'm glad that you finally got to cross it off your list. Me too. Uh, I'm really excited to see where we're going to go in the future, though, because I, I don't know. I just I'm really excited about the films we've been watching. Mm hmm. Well, we've got one more before we take a bit of a breather. We decided on a bit of an arbitrary stop date so that we can do a few more of these recordings and then give ourselves some time to edit between our respective other projects. So we're going to hop back to Cronenberg one more time before we take that breather. So we've got scanners left. Yeah. Only thing I know about this is someone's head explodes. Indeed. Yeah. (laughs) I'll I'll be curious because this is one that's going to be new to both of us. Okay. But also, I feel like this is a a weird transition one for Cronenberg where we had started to see how he was going to, yeah, do that combination of like independent artistry mixed with commercially friendly projects. And I feel like this is him figuring out whether he can still do body horror, but make it commercial. Gotcha. So we'll see. But uh, (laughs) Terry, if people want to talk about Blue Velvet with you, how would they get in touch? Uh, You would get in touch with me on Twitter or Instagram at Gaily Dreadful. And Joe, if they want to uh, talk about different beers and which one is the (laughs) best, (laughs) how should they get in touch with you? Should only talk to me if they want to (laughs) fuck. Terrible, terrible. Just I, just, I find DMs. that line so upsetting. It's so upsetting. <laughs> it really is. Oh, boy. He says yeah. that word an awful lot. He really, really does. Brian at one point looked over at me and gave me the like, what are you watching over there right now? <laughs> like, it's a classic of American cinema. <laughs> uh, you can reach me at Beast on my remote. And that's the letter B. And thank you, as always, to the Anatomy of a Screen Pod Squad for hosting the show. So, yeah, one more entry in Sexy and Surreal for this first series. Uh, Come back in a little while for Scanners, folks. Hell yeah. Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad.